0: WAGP.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogi is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area. Call toll-free 877-924-7980.
1: Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogi. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you're a very first time listener for the next hour, we'll be taking people's questions. Maybe there's a passage of scripture that you need some uh, help with or particular issue you're facing your life and you're looking for a biblical application. Well, if we can help, all you need to do is call again, locally, 525-1859, or you can email us here directly into the studio and the email address is TBL, that stands for the Bible line, tbl at net. When you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question. Rick, uh, let's go ahead and get started. It's great to be here again today.
0: It is indeed, Pastor, and we already have callers standing by on the line, so let's go to our first one now. Good morning. Thanks for holding. You're on the Bible line.
1: Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Pastor. Good morning.
0: Um, with all this celebration of Bruce Jenner, with what he has done to himself, I, I can't help but think, you know, just the media and how they're embracing this. And you know, it's so many people on social media that are just giving kudos to him or her or whatever it is now. I mean, I know there's no such thing as transgenderism, but it just, it just reminds me how lost we are as a nation that people would embrace this and it just... Makes me think of the scripture in the last days. People call good evil and evil good.
1: Well, you're right, you know, and it's he's still Bruce Jenner, he's still a he. So um I would not give credence to calling him a she. He's a he and he always will be. That even rhymes. Uh and um that's not going to change even though he's allowed some pervert physician to make money out of greed, no doubt, or out of a depraved mind himself to go ahead and perform these kinds of surgeries on his body. So uh, it is a a sad state of affairs that people would indeed uh, embrace this kind of lifestyle and give kudos to it. But God reminds us in the book of Romans, the first chapter, when a society is in rebellion, uh, God allows that society uh, to express his wrath. Uh, in Romans one eighteen, the Bible says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. You know, there's a future dimension to God's wrath. A day is coming when he will deal out eternal retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. But there's a present dimension of God's wrath that, people can experience right now. And that's really what is happening to our culture. Though they profess to be wise, they become fools in that they exchange the truth of God for a lie and they worship the creation instead of the creator. That's evolution. That's a tree hugging. That's a worshiping the environment instead of the living God. And so people have turned their backs on God. And so God gives them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity. That's stage one where people who are heterosexual uh, engage in sexual impurity. And when that becomes the rhythm of a society, they move into stage two. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. Their women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. The men abandon the natural function of the woman and burn in their desire towards one another. And uh, stage three, which I think we have entered into past uh, heterosexual immorality, past homosexual perversion, and they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, so God gave them over to a depraved mind. Um, the, the Greek word is an interesting word. I actually love some of the Slavic translations here because I think they capture it best. The old King James says reprobate. Uh, the um, Slavic translation says God gave them over to an upside-down mind. And yes, like Jeremiah, the prophet, it's a sad day when people call evil, good and good evil. And so uh, I, I fear for our nation that God has abandoned us, is in the process of abandoning us. And unless we repent as a people, what is in the future is not good. Uh, we will go into either a dark ages or Christ will come back. Uh, but the future will not be pleasant. America will not be the great nation that it has been to live in. And, and what people are blinded to is that because this na- this nation has been such a great place to live because of our Christian heritage and our Christian roots, and we've seen the blessing of God, America has been blessed in an unprecedented way. Not because we have more, you know, gold in our hills or, more oil on our land, but because we've acknowledged the living God, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. So we're in a desperate days, and it requires desperate measures. And God's people need to stand strong in the midst of it. But good, uh, good point. Appreciate that caller. Let's go to our next caller. Indeed, our uh, actually was a
0: dictated question from Canyon Lake, Texas. Zach would like to know why have we Christians done away with the Levitical law? Isn't God's word eternal? Didn't Jesus say, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke of the law shall pass uh, from the law until all is accomplished? We'll get to that question in just a second. We always give uh, preference to live callers, and we do have one that's on the line now. So let's go to them. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line.
2: Good morning, Dr. Brogy. Good morning, Rick.
0: Yeah,
1: hello. Uh,
2: my question is, Is uh, I know a long time ago, I don't know how long ago it was, but you You were uh, speaking on how Andy Stanley had called on his father, Charles Stanley, to step down from the church or from the pastorate because he was divorced from his mother, even though, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, I heard that Charles Stanley did not want the divorce, but his his wife did. But nonetheless, because of that, he, he should step down from the pastorate. It got me to thinking... Uh, you see in television shows, movies, or in real life, uh, a woman that may want to divorce from her husband or vice versa. And I, w- I started thinking, what if, say, the woman wanted to divorce the husband and he did not want to divorce her? My first question is, is, legally is he legally required to divorce her or could he fight it and say i love you i'm going to pray about this i'm not going to divorce you i'm going to pray that this marriage will be saved or is he legally required to divorce her and secondly uh, it re- i was wondering is, is that could you relate that with say hosea and gomer where god used it as an example of you know christ's love where hon gomer was just this you know living this wicked lifestyle but god called hosea to remain married to her
1: it's a great question and um it requires a thoughtful answer you know certainly dr stanley did not want to leave his wife um and she left him and that was a very sad state and Uh, I spoke to Dr. Stanley personally over this issue. We had about a 20-minute phone call many years ago, and he felt like his son and a group of men with him wanted to do a hostile takeover of the church, and so he felt like, no, I can't leave. I, I have to stay here. He also argued, or I say argued, defended in terms of that use of the term argued that um, being the husband of one wife is a requirement for marriage. And because of that, he would never, a requirement for for ministry. And because of that, he would uh, never pursue anything but reconciliation with his wife. And he sought for many years to try to reconcile their differences in terms of, can you be divorced against your will? Yes, in all 50 states though in different states it unfolds differently. There are states where in 30 days you can have a divorce. Simple, no contest divorce. Some states it takes a year. A year, uh, the clock starts when uh, for one year two people are not living under the same roof. Uh, One night in the same house uh, restarts the clock. So it depends from state to state, but yes, unfortunately, sometimes people are divorced against their will who don't want the divorce and they can't seem to fix the problem. Paul says in first Corinthians seven to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord that the wife should not leave her husband, but if she does leave, let her remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. Or if the shoe's on the other foot, he adds the phrase, and that the husband should not send his wife away. Uh, he'll begin a different discourse here in First Corinthians 7 and verse 12 by saying, but to the rest, I say not the Lord. So on the one hand, he says, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. And the other, he says, um, I say not the Lord. So in one situation, this is an issue that Jesus addressed. In the other situation, he did not address it but Paul with apostolic authority is addressing it on his behalf. Well, when did Jesus say that the wife should not marry, I uh, should not leave her husband? Well, he's giving an application of the teaching that Jesus gave in Mark nine Mark 10, Mark, Matthew 19, Matthew five, Luke 16, 18. What Paul says in Romans seven, one through four, that the only honorable way to break a marriage covenant is by death. So he's applying that principle and so in light of that, he is saying that the wife should not leave, but if she does leave and there were situations where God gave an allowance to leave, so to speak. And if a woman comes into my office and she's being beaten up by her husband or he's uh, sleeping you know, around with all these different women or he's drinking away the paycheck with drugs or alcohol, she may need to draw a line in the sand and leave for her own protection. But if she does leave, what are her options? Well, this is in in light of the counsel that Jesus gave in the gospels that she remains unmarried or she's reconciled to her husband. Um, That's the only option. So I, the God of Israel hate divorce. Now, thousands and thousands of people listening to me have failed in that area. And there is forgiveness. Um, God forgives all manner of sin, Jesus said. So God can forgive anything. But with that said, and we need to, at the same time, simultaneously hold out the forgiveness of God with the standard of God. The fact that God can forgive an abortion doesn't mean that a woman should say, well, I guess I'll go get an abortion and then I'll just receive God's forgiveness. You never use the grace of God as a means to presume On his goodness the grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live holy and righteously in the current age so uh, yeah God tells uh, Hosea he's gonna marry a girl named Gomer and she's gonna live a destitute life and he uses it as an illustration of what Israel who was considered to be God's bride in the Old Testament uh, of uh, Israel's rebellion towards him and yet God loves Israel with an everlasting love and uh, so Hosea was to do with Gomer. Anyway, great question. I appreciate it. Let's go on to the next one.
0: All right. We'll go back to that question from Canyon Lake, Texas. Zach writes, Why have we Christians done away with the Levitical law? Isn't God's word eternal? Didn't Jesus say, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke of the law shall pass away from the law until it's all accomplished? Matthew five seventeen. Doesn't this include the Levitical law? This is something that's been pressing on my heart lately. I don't know if it's out of ignorance or if all my teachers in the past have been deceived on this subject. I really enjoy listening to you and your search the scriptures and sermons and learned from your teachings and your dad, his dad rather, um, was the first person you led to Christ at CBC and in turn he led uh, Zach to Christ. Mm. I
1: remember I remember uh, Paul Garner. Yeah, he was a marine captain and came to our church and received Christ and only been the pastor about a week. Uh, that was 25 years ago. Uh, Next month and uh, the next Sunday, he came forward and confessed his faith. And uh, so it's a good question that Zach asks. Uh, Paul says the law entered that the offense might abound. Um, So the law was added, he says, in Romans 5 and in Galatians 3 uh, because of sin. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions until the seed, referring to Messiah, should come to whom the promise was made. Um so there was some sense in which the seed Messiah was going to put an end to the law. Paul says also in the same book here in Galatians, but before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore the law has become our tutor, our schoolmaster, depending on your translation, to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come we are no longer under a tutor. So there was a certain function of the law. We've been released from the law in one respect uh, that we might serve as Romans 7 says in newness of life. So when you read the Old Testament law, you have to uh, read it very carefully because there are some Christians today who uh, if you talk about tithing or you talk about honoring the Lord's day, they'll say, well, you're legalistic and you're this or you're that. But obviously there are some Old Testament laws that we don't obey and that we don't follow. Um, What laws do we not obey? Well, I doubt uh, anyone listening to me uh, tried to bring an animal sacrifice to church last week. Why not? Because the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament were ceremonial in nature. They prefigured what Messiah was going to do. And so they were foreshadows of the reality who is Christ and so we don't any longer uh, bring animal sacrifices they could never the blood of bulls and goats could never remove sin the writer of the hebrew says only christ could do that so in the old testament under the old covenant under the old deal under the old promise uh, the animal sacrifice was to the jew what baptism today is to the christian uh, it looked ahead just as our baptism looks back But it was purely symbolic. It had no power in which to actually forgive. And that's why the writer says there still remained guilt uh, after they had gone through that process. You read the cleansing laws of the Old Testament. Uh, You read the uh, dietary laws of the Old Testament. The dress laws of the Old Testament. Many of them were not part of the moral law of God. They were just part of the ceremonial law, and they were constant reminders to the Jew of the need for cleansing or forgiveness. And some of those laws were given to distinguish the people of the Old Testament. So, for instance, take the Levitical law of uh, diet that's found in Leviticus 11, and again in Deuteronomy 14. Uh, There God says things that you can eat or not eat. Well, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. However, sometimes the way he deals with his people does change. And so we are no longer mandated to follow the dietary laws of the Old Testament. Jesus, in in Mark's gospel, declared all things clean. In Acts 10, when he gives Peter a vision of of a sheet coming down from heaven filled with all kinds of animals, And God says, take and eat. And Peter says, I can't. It's unclean. And God says, what I've called clean, let no one call unclean. So he takes an illustration that doesn't have error in it. God only uses truth to teach truth. And of course, he teaches him about Gentiles and his relationship to the church uh, that was made up of not just Jews, but Gentiles as well. So passages like Mark 7 and Acts 10 give me insight on the dietary laws. So the old covenant, Levitical law must be read in light of the new covenant. Uh, Now there's many things in the old Testament that are binding in the book of Leviticus. Uh, God said for uh, a man to lie with a man is an abomination. It's still an abomination Uh, for a man to lie with an animal is an abomination. It's still an abomination. Uh, So, There are things that are part of the moral law of God. In fact, anything that you read of in the Old Testament that's associated with the word abomination, I can tell you it's still an abomination. God is underscoring its morality. Tithing, well, tithing was done ever before the Mosaic Law. Uh, Abraham tithed, Jacob tithed, ever before. How did they know to give 10% and not 1% or not 25%? Why 10%? because God had obviously revealed that God had revealed many things to Abraham in many portions. And in many ways, God revealed his truth. How did Abel know to bring an animal sacrifice of blood rather than the kind of sacrifice that Cain brought? Cause God had revealed it to Adam and Eve ever before there was a written Bible. But in reference to the moral law of God, that's always binding. That's always dictating. And I think tithing, for instance, is part of the moral law of God. Romans 8, 4 tells us that we could never be justified by the law, but having been justified by the work of Messiah, one of the purposes of Christ justifying us and fulfilling the promise of the new covenant that he'd put his spirit within us. He says in Romans 8, 4, that the requirement of the law will be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So the promise of a new covenant, that Jeremiah and Ezekiel speaks of a new deal, and Jesus uh, reminded us that the new covenant was enacted at Golgotha. And so, there at the Last Supper, He stands up and He says, "This is, you know, a symbol of the new covenant, which is given for many." And the promise of the new covenant is that God would forgive their sin. They never really, in the truest sense, knew forgiveness, and that's why Old Testament saints. When they um, died, they didn't go directly to heaven. They went into Abraham's bosom, a place that's called paradise. God emptied out Old Testament, Sheol, Old Testament paradise, the righteous side of the grave, and carried them into heaven uh, at the resurrection uh, or the ascension of Christ, as Ephesians 4 tells us. So uh, under the new covenant, in a real sense, our sin is forgiven. Yes, people could experience cleansing, but not a permanent forgiveness, as the writer to the Hebrews tells us. And so that could not be enacted until in time and space, Messiah actually was dead and raised on our behalf. And so the promise of that new covenant is he'll now send the spirit within us. And this is a a unique privilege of the New Testament believer that in the truest sense, uh, the Old Testament believers did not know They did not have the permanent indwelling of the Spirit of God. That's why David, um, after he sinned greatly, having committed both adultery and murder, he said, Lord, take not thy Holy Spirit from me in Psalm 51. That's an Old Testament prayer. Uh, The Holy Spirit now lives in us and he's sealed in us until the day of redemption. But David had seen the Spirit of God depart from Saul, and of course he feared that maybe the same thing would happen to him in light of the grievous sin that he had committed against the Lord. But God saw David's heart, that it was truly repentant, and so God restored him and cleansed him and even calls him in both Testaments, old and new, a man after his own heart. 525-1859,
0: 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980 if you have a Bible question on today's Bible line. You can also email us at tbl at wagp.net, as has this listener who writes, My father taught us that a pastor or minister who held an office in politics or ran for office was on the wrong path. I believe this is true, yet I see many ministers running for office today. Jesus taught, we cannot serve two masters. Are the scriptures specific on this
1: matter? Well, there are certainly leadership people in the work of God's kingdom that have served in political office. Uh, There are some people who are mentioned that are brought to Christ in the the New Testament. Uh, And then there are certainly the leaders in the Old Testament like a Joseph or a Nehemiah a Daniel, who aren't in the strictest sense I suppose you might call preachers, but they're God's representatives, and they are standing for God's truth, and yet they are used of God in that capacity. Um, the question that you're asking really is not should a Christian run for political office, and, and I think they should. I, I think if if anyone should be in office it should be Christians. Uh the the first Supreme Court Justice of the United States, John Jay, said that unless a man is a Christian, he shouldn't be in office. It is preferred, he said, that Christians serve in office. Uh there have been men in the past who were pastors in the early years of our country John Weatherspoon, who was certainly one of the founding fathers, signed the Declaration of Independence, uh, was a ratifier of the Constitution, uh, basically served as Washington's right-hand man, was the Reverend Dr. John Weatherspoon. Uh, He was a preacher. And, of course, there are many famous examples of pastors. But I would say as a general rule, when it comes to a pastor— If God has called you to the ministry, that is such a full-time occupation that it would be very difficult to serve effectively as a politician and as a pastor at the same time. I'm not saying that someone can't do it or that it would be morally wrong to do it. David Lane, um, the founder of the American Renewal Project, who's been responsible for the last eight or ten years of gathering pastors together from across the nation, to try to encourage them to get their congregations to one register to vote and number two to vote intelligently and uh, that is a great need uh, the 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 sin of the church, one of the sins of the church is there 's too much silence. Um, I, David Lane gathered forty of us uh, recently, and I was privileged to go and He made an interesting statement. And the guy has done his research, and he's spent uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars on these conferences for for pastors. But this was a group of just 40 of us, and he brought Bobby Jandell in, and he shared his testimony and how he came to Christ and different things. And then David spoke, and he said, you know, only 50% of evangelical Christians are actually registered to vote. And of the 50% who are registered to vote, only about half of them actually get out and vote in a major election. And in a non-major election, only about half of those half. And of course, he is challenging 1,000 pastors right now to run for political office, whether it's dog catcher or senator or governor, it doesn't matter. But for pastors who feel led of God to uh, go and run for political office. Again, I think it would be very challenging, but I see pastors who are out there who do a terrible job representing us. Uh, the pastor that represents me in my district on the South Carolina state level is in favor of abortion. He's in favor of murdering little babies, and he is the one who helped to stop the, um, the, uh, the, the Child Pain Act in the state of South Carolina, Clementa Pickney. And I told our people, I said, if there is because I don't think a Republican will win that seat. But I said, look, if there's a born again Christian who wants to run as a Democrat who has conservative biblical values, I don't care whether it's a Democrat or Republican, as long as he's a Christocrat, I'll support him and I'll encourage him and do what I can to get that other guy out of office who's in favor of the murder of little babies. And he's so deceitful to his own congregation. And that when I speak to his own secretary, she says, Oh no, 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 no. He would never, he would never, ever, 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 you know, um, encourage a woman's right to abortion. And when I spoke to him personally, he said, well, you know, 20 weeks and above, what if a woman's raped? What if a woman, um, you know, has, uh, you know, a baby as a result of incest, I would say, I said to him, look, before 20 weeks, she's going to know she's pregnant. She's got plenty of time, you know, to have an abortion. I'm not advocating that, but I'm just using his, his faulty logic to show that it's incredibly faulty. And two, it becomes an escape clause and makes the bill basically meaningless because all a woman has to say is I was raped and uh, she can have her abortion. So it's really unfortunate. Gestation gets lower and lower and lower. Most babies now survive at 24 weeks gestation, the highest percentage due to medical technology. And I'm sure five years from now, it will be even lower than that. Um, But we need godly people to stand up for what's right. God's people are to shine the light. They're to rub the salt. And if we do nothing, well, we're going to have the kind of nation that we have. Uh, I don't think that the solution to our problems is political. I think it's spiritual. And I think one of the reasons we are in such a uh, political mess in our nation is because the average Christian has stopped sharing their faith. The average Christian in America no longer tries to bridge a conversation into the gospel to give someone the plan of salvation so we're becoming more and more godless. Why is that? Um, I think because the hearts of God's people are growing cold in our day. They are so filled their minds with uh, the entertainments of the internet and their smartphones and movies and everything else you can think of that their hearts have grown so cold they've just stopped taking seriously our Commander-in-Chief, Jesus Christ, who has told us to go into all the world and to make disciples. And that's not happening in America today. And the gospel is not being given. And we do, yes, have these mega churches with thousands of people. And I meet people from these mega churches and they don't even know what the plan of salvation is. And I'm thinking, what is going on? I meet people, you know, from New Spring, the Perry, Perry Noble, you know, they don't even know what the gospel is. And I thought, what are they teaching in that church? And what is going on? And it's a, it's a sad day. Um, But I know this. I I may not be able to change our nation. I may not be able to change our state, but there's one person I know I can be responsible for and that's myself. And even if no one else wants to obey God, I can obey God. And you can do the same. And it starts with just a few people who want to be obedient to the living God.
0: 525 toll free 877-924-7980 or email us at tbl at net. our next listener writes in second samuel 19 verse 7 it says now there was an evil spirit from the lord on saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand and david was playing the harp with his hand this is first samuel nineteen nine. i don't understand how god who has absolutely no evil in him can place an evil spirit on saul
1: well it's a good question um if you remember just to set the uh the broader context here uh god uh by his uh servant had anointed david to be king and so david's going to become king and so how can a how can a shepherd boy so to speak uh get to that position because god had already rejected saul because of the great sin that he had committed and so god's going to intervene and override Saul people looked at the outward appearance of that man when they selected him. But God looks at the heart, as he said, through Samuel, the prophet. And so the scripture says there was an evil spirit from the Lord on Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the harp with his hand. And so the servant said, look, you need some music uh, because you'll feel better and they go and recruit David because he's a famous harp, harp player as a young man and uh, Saul doesn't really understand where David's at and God's plan for David but when he comes and he ministers in music uh, God blesses that ministry and in the process uh, the spirit flees Saul. Music by the way is a powerful medium for good or for evil and people tell me sometimes, well, you know, the, the the words don't matter. I don't listen to the words. I just listen to the beat. Well, I doubt that, number one, because it's pretty hard to disassociate the beat from the music. But just as God has music that leads a person's heart towards the Lord, the devil has his music that attracts the demonic realm. And so when David comes and he plays the harp, the evil spirit flees. And um, so just keep that in mind. But with that said, as Martin Luther once said, the devil is God's devil. The devil is God's devil. And so when it says there was an evil spirit from the Lord, God, uh, of course, never tempts people with evil, but God is over all things. And sometimes uses even Satan to discipline people. And so God allowed Satan to come with an evil spirit to attack King Saul. Uh, God works all things together for good, ultimately for his glory and for his honor. Um, God allowed Satan to attack Job. Um, Read Job 1 and Job 2. And Satan comes into the presence of God and says, well, the only reason Job obeys you is because you bought him. You've blessed him so much. And if you remove the blessing, you'll really see Job's heart, that um, he has only responded because of your goodness. And of course, um, God shows otherwise, and he allows the devil to have the interaction that he does. Likewise, in the New Testament, you come to Acts chapter 5, where you have Ananias and Sapphira. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Spirit of God? So, um, God also in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, which would be a really telling passage, it says it's actually reported, the Greek word is akuitai, it means it's broadcast, it's well known, that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as dot, doesn't even exist amongst the the Gentiles. Here, the word Gentile being used synonymously as a pagan. Even the pagans find disgusting what you Corinthians... Are uh, know very well is happening in your church. Namely, that someone has his father's wife. There's someone who's sleeping with his stepmother. And you've become arrogant and have not mourned instead in order that the one who had done this deed might be removed from your midst. There is such a thing, by the way, as church discipline, that if someone is living in sexual immorality, the testimony of the church is greatly harmed. And now, of course, unfortunately, uh, churches across America are sanctioning sexual immorality. All the main lines are now sanctioning sanctioning sexual immorality by affirming homosexual marriage. And so, most recently, the PCUSA has sanctioned sexual immorality. We have two churches in our town that have sanctioned sexual immorality by voting in favor of homosexual marriage and so many of the few Christians that were in those churches have now have now left. They should have removed the person whether it was heterosexual sex or homosexual sex it didn't matter. They should have exercised church discipline. Otherwise the testimony of the church is just harmed. So Paul says for I am my part though absent in body but present in spirit have already judged him. Who is so committed this as though i were present in the name of our lord jesus when you are assembled and i with you in spirit with the power of our lord jesus i have decided to deliver such a one to satan for the destruction of his flesh that his spirit might be saved in the day of the lord jesus so god uses even among his people a demonic spirit or in this case satan directly in uh, the demonic means that he has under his authority to discipline his people. So God never tempts anyone with evil, but all things are under the control of a sovereign God. Satan cannot operate independently of the living God. He's under God's authority. Luther had it right when he said, "The devil is God's devil." Good question. Let's go to the next one.
0: Indeed, five two five one eight five nine, toll free eight seven seven nine two four seven nine eight zero. And email us at tbl at net. Terry from Charleston writes, Is it hard or easy to be saved? It seemed easy for the thief on the cross, but much more difficult for the rich man. The Bible says that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but it also says that if you're not born again, you will not see the kingdom
1: of God. Well, when you call upon the name of the Lord to be saved, you will be born again. So the second birth is simultaneous. With calling upon the name of the Lord. Um, it's interesting in Matthew chapter 11, uh, Jesus gives a tribute to John and uh, what a great man of God he was. And, and then it, the Bible says he began to reproach the cities in which uh, so many of his miracles had been done. And he said, Woe to you, Chorazin! woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, w- which occurred in you, they would have repented and sackcloth and ashes nevertheless I say to you it shall be more tolerable for tire uh, uh, that it will be for you in the day of judgment and then he gives similar woes and he reminds them look if the people in Sodom and Gomorrah had seen these kinds of miracles they would have repented and then he makes a very fascinating statement at that time Jesus answered and said I praise thee O Father Lord of heaven and earth that you did hide these things from the wise and intelligent and did reveal them to babes for it was pleasing for you to do so in your sight. So there is a sense in which salvation is easy for the person who doesn't come in his own righteousness and his own wisdom. And he's willing to submit his will to the wisdom of God. And Jesus is not advocating that we should be stupid people, but he's simply saying that like a child, and that's why he can liken the kingdom of God to children. Unless you become like a child, you shall not in any way enter the kingdom of God. Like a child who is not wise and intelligent in their own estimation, uh, you can have a mind that will receive the gospel. And so he can give a very broad invitation in the next verse, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart. So the, the invitation is broad and in one sense it is easy. It is so easy that a child can understand the gospel and genuinely be converted. But it's also very difficult in the respect that people can rebel against the wisdom of God Uh, they can buck against it. Many times Jesus said that it's because of their own love for sin, they will not come to the cross. Uh, Jesus said he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world, but men love the darkness. We speak sometimes of... uh, Agape love, uh, it's really agape, but anyway, we anglicize it and we say agape love as being God's love. Well, not always. The word agapao, the verb here, is the same one that's used in John three sixteen, a few verses before. But here he uses the verb, not of God having loved the world, but men who love the darkness. They willfully choose darkness over the light for men love the darkness for their deeds were evil for everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. And so people can come under the conviction of the spirit of God. And he's the one who makes salvation real. He applies it. He reveals to us our fallenness, our evil, the offense that we've committed against the Holy God. And some people, because they love their sin so much, will not respond to the ministry of the Spirit. Why? Because God's given them a free will. It's not that God chose them to go to hell. and No, they are going to hell if they end up there in the end because of their own free will, their own free choice. That they rejected the provision that God made for the offenses that they have done. And so it's a submission issue. And people are resistant. Our sin nature bucks against submission. And many people don't take that initial act of submission by calling upon the name of the Lord. For he is indeed Lord uh, in order to be saved and to have this new birth because you're unwilling to submit to the wisdom and to the authority of God. And that's Romans 1 all over again, professing to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged God's wisdom for their own wisdom. And that was the problem with the religious leadership in Matthew 11. But it's not the problem with everyone. So it is simple in that you can't earn salvation. I mean, think about the thief on the cross. In fact, think about both thieves. Uh, Matthew tells us that they were blaspheming and cursing Christ. It says it by way of application. It says they did what the Pharisees did. And the Pharisees um, blasphemed and cursed Christ. So the crucifixion that took place from nine in the morning till three in the afternoon for six hours uh, was a time that really caused some reflection to take place in the heart of one man. And so before the six hours were over, Luke gives us an insight that Matthew doesn't. The gospels never contradict. They only complement one another. And so he turns to his buddy and he says, This one has done nothing wrong. We're just getting what we deserve. He's sinless. We're sinners. And then he turned to Christ and he said, Lord Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Those men were Jewish men. They probably had, at some point in their life, either been to the synagogue or been to the temple or had parents who uh, spoke of the coming Messiah. And somehow, don't ask me how uh, God the Spirit brought it together in this man's heart. He understood the saying above the top of the cross. Some have called it the first evangelistic tract. This is uh, Jesus, King of the Jews. Um, He put it together that the one next to him was the promised king who would sit on David's throne, that he was the Messiah, that his kingdom was not going to end that day in a grave But he had to have been the one that the Old Testament prophets wrote of, who would die a substitutionary death, but be raised from the dead. And so he comes in simple faith. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, did he earn his way to heaven? No. So salvation is easy in the respect that it's a gift. It's not something you can earn. It's not a reward to the righteous. It's a gift to the guilty. You have to come, though, as a guilty individual. And that's what's so hard for people. That's what was so hard for the religious leadership in Jesus's day. And so Jesus could say, it's not those who are well, who need a physician, but those who are sick. I didn't come to save the righteous. That is people who think they're righteous, but I came to call sinners to repentance. You go to a physician when you see you're sick and you can't heal yourself. You'll come to a savior when you see you can't save yourself. And that's why on another occasion, after he tells the parable of the two sons Um, He says that uh, the prostitutes and the tax collectors, the immoral and the ripoff artists, paraphrased they are in a better position to enter the kingdom of God than those moral Pharisees were. Why? Because you didn't have to convince those two groups of people that they were wicked. They knew it and they knew that they had such a debt that unless somehow God could deliver them, they didn't stand a ghost of a chance where the good moral guy, he tended to compare his life with those immoral people. Look, if all I need to do is live better than Hitler, I'm a shoe in But Hitler is not the one I need to evaluate my life by. I need to evaluate my life by Jesus Christ, the glory of God, and next to him we all fall short. So it's hard and it's easy. But man in his pride wants to reject the wisdom of God And um, that's why Paul, when he writes the Corinthians, he says the the wisdom of God is foolishness to man. That a man can be redeemed through a substitute who died and was raised is foolishness to many people. Because there's a way, as Proverbs says twice over, that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. We don't want to admit our bankruptcy. We don't want to admit that we are unable to save ourselves. And uh, so when you speak to people as the gift of God is eternal life, they'll say that's too easy. Well, according to Jesus in Luke 18, he would say, that's the hardest thing you'll ever do. Why? Because it shatters all human pride. You can't come to God, shining your knuckles, telling them about all the good deeds you've done. You have to come bankrupt and say to God, there's nothing I've ever done or might do that will even get me into heaven. And you have to transfer your trust, your faith, your belief from yourself to be your own Savior and put it in the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation, which is defined as the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ.
0: All right. Our next listener says, if a Christian woman has been attending church all her life and she meets a man who is not, but he is a Christian and is beginning to attend church, that is, and they're discussing marriage, are they unequally yoked?
1: Well, when Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 speaks of someone being unequally yoked, uh, if you apply it to the realm of marriage, it's in reference to a believer marrying an unbeliever. So he says in 2 Corinthians 6 and 14, do not be bound together with unbelievers for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness or what harmony has Christ with Belial or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever. So he asks these rhetorical questions and the answer is nothing or what agreement is the temple of God with idols for we are the temple of the living God, just as God has said. And then he quotes the old Testament. I will dwell in them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Again, that's a, uh, an old Testament quotation of the promise of the new covenant that God said he would bring through the finished work of, of the Messiah. And then he makes this statement, therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean. And I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So, of course, there's no greater binding relationship next to your salvation in Christ than the one you marry. And God makes it very clear that a believer is never to marry an unbeliever, period. Now, there are people who were in mixed marriages because after they got married, the gospel was preached and one became a believer and the other did not. And that's one of the questions that Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, Do I stay in the marriage? And God's answer is yes. If that unbeliever will agree to live with you as a believer, that's a positive thing because you can influence their life and potentially uh, win them to Christ. Peter gives similar counsel in first Peter chapter three to women who are married to unbelievers that by your changed life, God will give you a platform in which to preach the gospel. In either case, um, my caution to you would be to make sure that this person really is a believer because there is what I call marriage alter conversion. In other words, some guy meets a girl that he likes And he knows that she's religious or calls herself one of those born-agains. And so he gets uh, supposedly religious. And then they get married, and sometimes weeks or a few months after the marriage has taken place, he's done with going to church. He's had his full of it, and he can't take it anymore. So you don't want to, uh, because you think he's cute, or he's wealthy, or he's this, or he's that, or whatever it is that is attracted to you, you don't want to try to manufacture in your mind, well, he's a Christian. And I would ask, well, why all these years did he not go to church? Was he born again? And if he was, then he was certainly disobedient, because he was forsaking the assembling of the brethren. Um, So while a believer can be disobedient and not be involved with God's people in the Lord's day and any Christian listening to me, if you don't attend a Bible believing church on Sunday morning, I'm not saying to those who can't because they're physically able, but those who have said, I'm not doing it. You're living in sin. Just call it what it is. And you won't be able to see God work in your life or you're living in self-deception Because it's like forgiveness on the one hand, a mark of forgiveness is that you'll forgive other people as Jesus told in that great parable of a man who went to his king who owed him $20 million and the king graciously releases him of the debt and he goes home and he's got a servant who owes him a hundred bucks. And he refuses to forgive. And Jesus' point in the parable is that if you've really been forgiven of God, then you'll forgive others. Yet on the other hand, it's possible for a Christian to withhold forgiveness. So we are taught in the Lord's Prayer to release others as God has released us. Paul commands the Ephesians, forgive each other. How just like God in Christ Jesus forgave you. Well, in the same, you could take this realm of fellowship. On the one hand it's a mark of conversion and so John can say by this we know we've passed out of death into life that we love the brethren in other words he's saying a mark that you are genuinely converted it's one of five marks given in first John of um, of evidence that a person has come to know the living God and that's why he concludes the epistle by saying these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life what things these different aspects of someone who's in fellowship with the Lord. And again, if, if someone doesn't love the brethren other born again Christians, then they probably have sure proof evidence that either a, they've never been converted or B they're in disobedience. And so if this man to whom you are thinking about marrying, has spent years outside of the church, a very probing question you want to ask is why is it because he lived in sin all these lives, all these years as a believer. And if that's the case, has he really come to confess that? Would he say to you, you know, um, I was in sin for the last five years, not attending church. I was in rebellion against God, but God has graciously forgiven me and cleansed me. Would he give that kind of answer? Or does he just say, well, I've always been a Christian, but you know, now I, I want to make this a priority. Well, you know, you want to really probe and find out whether this man loves God. Look, I, I'd rather be a uh, single wanting to be married than to be married, wanting to have a divorce. And so uh, shop very carefully, pray carefully, seek the living God, seek counsel through a pastor But don't jump into anything, especially in light of the circumstances that you have just described. Well, we're out of time for another Bible line, and I'm so glad that you were able to join us today. Uh, There is a conference coming up here at Community Bible Church, not really a conference, but a meeting for women. A former Victoria's Secret model left that godless industry in order to serve Christ, and she is going to tell her story Um, over 700 close to now 800 have already pre-registered you can go online at communitybiblechurch.org or uh, communitybiblechurch.us and if you go there you can register online seating is limited in the auditorium to the first 1800 it's less than two weeks away we expect it will probably fill up And if you want to be eligible for the door prize, either way, you have to pre-register online for some of the door prizes. It's going to be a great evening. If you're a Christian lady, then you should bring an unbelieving or an unchurched person with you. So go to communitybiblechurch.us for details. One of
0: them tomorrow as John MacArthur brings the series on forgiveness on the next Grace to You.